Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. So, American democracy? If you live in Northern California, chances are that you're pretty worried about our country. Persistent racial divisions, wild inequality, a balkanized media ecosystem, and fundamental differences in how people view the rights of individuals have resulted in a polarized country. Today we're joined by historian Heather Cox Richardson, Boston College professor, and perhaps the most effective historical communicator helping to explain our current moment. She'll tell us about her new book, Democracy Awakening Notes on the State of America, and what it tells us about how to fight back against rising authoritarianism. She joins us in the studio after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Heather Cox Richardson is the author of many books on American history, focusing especially on the Republican Party and the post-Civil War era we call Reconstruction. More recently, she's become the rare historian with a huge popular following, as more than two million subscribers to her newsletter can attest. Her new book is Democracy Awakening, Notes on the State of America, a work that traces two competing impulses in our political history, a hierarchical, domination-based ideology that says some people are better than others and should rule, and one that's inscribed in our Declaration of Independence, where everyone is equal before the law, and we all deserve a say in choosing our government. It's an incredible primer on the threads of American political history that are most relevant to our age, and we are delighted to have Heather Cox Richardson here with us this morning. Welcome. It's such a pleasure to be here. So your newsletter and the book both offer this historical lens on American politics and current events. And a lot of ink has clearly been spilled about how we got to this place where the leader of the Republican Party is Donald Trump. Where do you locate the starting point for how we got here? Like, how deep are these roots? Well, there are two ways to answer that. The the roots of the idea that some people are better than others and have the right and maybe the duty to rule go all the way back to the first time that a European dropped anchor off of the North, North American continent. But the question of how we got to a moment in which Donald Trump is the presumptive front runner for the 2024 Republican nomination for president actually, I think, is an attempt to overturn the New Deal government that the Democrats began to put in place 
place in 1933, and that mm-hmm. was really the concept of government that, under which we've lived be, between 1933 until the present, uh, although it came under attack beginning in 1981. And so the idea of destroying that government, taking a government that the Democrats and later on the Republicans primarily under Dwight Eisenhower constructed to regulate business, to provide a basic social safety net, to promote infrastructure, and to protect civil rights, especially in the states. The idea of overturning that government really gets its teeth in 1937 after FDR wins his second uh, presidential election. And, you know, a lot of people thought when he got into office, was elected in 1932, that it was a flash in the pan, that he was going to disappear and we would go back to the kind of government we had in the 1920s. Mm-hmm. When he wins again in 1936, a lot of people who didn't like his system decide to come together and to fight back against it. And they actually wrote a document called the Conservative Manifesto in 1937, mm-hmm. in which Republicans who hated business regulation came together with uh, right-wing Democrats, primarily in the American South, who didn't like the fact the New Deal was beginning to push back against racial segregation. And they put together a document that was very, very brief. It gets leaked to the press and everybody runs away from it like little mice. But the document said that a government should never regulate business because that stood in the way of a man, because they were men in this period, of a man concentrating his wealth and figuring out how to run his businesses. So it, this would be bad for society. The government should never get involved in basic social safety legislation because that belonged to the churches. The government should not get involved in infrastructure because that would be done more efficiently by private enterprise and the money would then be returned to the the private sector. And finally, it absolutely should not get involved in civil rights. They called for something called home rule that meant that Southern states could arrange their racial issues however they wanted. And the reason that that, that is such a focus, I think, for, for me in my work and in this book is that doesn't that sound familiar? <laughs> it sure does. I, it's interesting, though, because, of course, the New Deal was extremely popular, though, right? So then the question becomes, how do you get to the point where those that itemization of things has become you know, mostly our lived reality? Isn't that astonishing? Yeah. So um, the answer to that is that those people who believed that, who wanted to push back against that, as you say, very popular idea, an idea that comes to be known as the liberal consensus coming out of World War II, the idea that this is what a government should do, these these it should operate in these four areas. People disagreed about what that meant, how far one should go with social welfare legislation, for example, how extensive government regulation should be. But Republicans and Democrats both believed that that's what the government should do. Mm-hmm. So people who disagreed with that had a real problem because they kept trying to get people to go back to the 1920s government that people looked at and said, wait a minute, that took us into the Depression. We don't want any part of that, right? We remember old ladies eating out of trash cans, and we remember living in packing boxes. We don't want any part of that. So they begin fairly early on, by the 1950s, to start to articulate the idea that we should no longer have a political discourse that's based in reality. We should no longer go forward to voters and say, listen, this is why you should vote for me. Instead, they should start from the premise that government should be Christian, and it should promote um, what they call free enterprise or individualism. Mm -hmm. And they insisted on starting from that premise. And again, that really didn't go very far. There's a famous book written in 1951, God and Man at Yale or the Superstitions of Academic Freedom by William F. Buckley Jr. Mm -hmm. There's a follow-up book in 1954 saying uh, that, in fact, McCarthy was right. It's called McCarthy and His Enemies, saying that McCarthy was right and that 
this new kind of government was essentially inviting socialism or even communism into the United States. Mm-hmm. And people standing against it were capital C conservatives in that they wanted to go back to the days before the New Deal. And everybody who accepted the New Deal government was a capital L liberal. Didn't take off very very much at all because people, again, liked the fact that they had a really high GDP. They had great jobs. They had you know these fancy cars. They had houses. They had all sorts of things that were just pipe dreams during the Depression. But then we get something very important in 1954. And in May of 1954, we get the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And with that decision of the Supreme Court, a unanimous decision, by the way, under a Supreme Court justice, Chief Justice Earl Warren, who had been the governor of California, who was appointed by Eisenhower, a Republican. With that decision, those people who hated this liberal consensus were able to say to voters, hey, wait a minute. You liked that government when it was protecting your economic interests, for example. But we always told you that if you had a government that did these things, pretty soon it was going to be giving minority Americans, but in this period they're looking primarily at black Americans. We always told you it was going to to use the government to give advantages to black Americans that white Americans don't have. And look, by 1957, you have Eisenhower sending in the troops to Little Rock Central High School to integrate the, the high school on the basis of Brown versus Board. Look, that's tax dollars that the government is using to bring integration to a southern state or what they define as a southern state. And what they begin to argue is something that reaches back to Reconstruction, in which they say, we always told you that a government that did these things was essentially socialism. Because look, it's using taxes to redistribute tax dollars paid for by white people into benefits for black and brown people. Therefore, it is a form of socialism. Therefore, it is destroying America. And therefore, you must stand against it. And that marriage of race and money in, you know, drawing from a much earlier period, but in the 1950s, is the wedge that is going to split that liberal consensus wide open. Right. I mean, we came to call this, right, the Southern strategy, right? In your in your book, you uh, quote LBJ on the topic, you know, if, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on and he'll empty his pockets for you. How do you see that strategy evolving through time? So the Southern strategy is what Nixon picks up in in 1968, but it actually comes, really develops in 1964 when uh, Arizona Senator Barry Goldwater gets the Republican nomination because the frontrunner for the Republican nomination crashes and burns because of an extramarital affair, right? So Goldwater gets the nomination, and he gets it on the basis of a document that is written, ghostwritten by the same man who wrote, um, co-wrote, uh, God, I'm sorry, um, McCarthy and his enemies in 1954. And that's L. Brent Bazell, who's a brother-in-law to William F. Buckley Jr. Aren't historians like just, you know. <laughs> that must, you know, that's a one of those connections that historians, I feel like, love to find. Totally, you know? yeah. totally. Because um, you can sort of see their fingerprints, right? Yeah. And I have no uh, proof of this. this. I should start with that. But I have always suspected that when Bazell wrote... Uh, the conscience of a conservative, he had that conservative manifesto in front of him because the points are almost Hmm. exactly the same. Hmm. Um, And again, just because you look for fingerprints and Mm -hmm. and, and it might just be chance, but I've always thought that was interesting. 
Anyway, in 1960, he, uh, Bazell writes a book that is ghostwritten for Barry Goldwater. It's called The Conscience of a Conservative. And what it calls for is the rollback of the government to the government the way it looked in the 1920s, including getting rid of things like Brown versus Board of Education. So when Goldwater is nominated for the Republican national um, uh, uh candidacy for the yeah. Republican Party and for president in 64, here in the Cow Palace, by the way, mm-hmm. in San Francisco, he is put over the top for that nomination by delegates from South Carolina because he is picking up the racist Southern Dixiecrats at this point, they're called, who don't want integration, who don't want to challenge what they consider um, home rule or white supremacy in the American South. So... He, of course, crashes and burns in 64. He gets his home state of Arizona, but he gets five deep southern states. And quite dramatically, Strom Thurmond from South Carolina switches very publicly from supporting the Democrats and the Dixiecrats to becoming a Republican. Mm. Then 65, we get the Voting Rights Act. And both parties have to decide if they're going to integrate people of color into their coalitions or not. And it's not clear what's going to happen after that. It's pretty clear what the Democrats are going to do because LBJ is in office. And, of course, he pushed the Voting Rights Act and he pushed the Civil Rights Act of 64. And he talks a lot about his legacy in American race. But what are the Democrats going to – I'm sorry, the Republicans going to do because they are traditionally the party of civil rights, traditionally. And that's when Nixon picks up the Southern strategy and he goes to Strom Thurmond and he says, if you stay with the Republicans, we will stop pushing – for the federal government to enforce civil rights in the states. With that Southern strategy, that strand of DNA embeds itself in the Republican Party. And by 1980, you've got got, um, uh, Ronald Reagan really hitting the idea of the welfare queen, a black woman who uses... um, also welfare cards and dead husbands to collect benefits she is not entitled to. She was a real person. She was a criminal, by the way. That's not the way the welfare system in general worked. Mm-hmm. And that idea of minorities taking advantage of the social welfare system at the expense of white taxpayers then becomes the Willie Horton ads, then becomes, yeah. you know, we can go And taps on from into there. these deep veins of uh, American thought. We're talking with historian Heather Cox Richardson about her new book, Democracy Awakening. She's a professor of history at Boston College, of course, and she has this incredible newsletter, Letters from an American. We want to hear from you. What are your questions for Professor Richardson? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786 or forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with historian Heather Cox Richardson about her new book, Democracy Awakening. You know, as I was reading this book, it, it has a lot of heroes. It has people who have done important and courageous things. You know, Lincoln, many different people's activists from different marginalized groups. There's also some real villains who've put their own interests ahead of everyday people's right to uh, exist. I, you know, I was wondering of those villains, or at least you know, opponents to your view of you know the American idea, who have you found the most sort of challenging or interesting to think about how to counter? It's so funny you ask that because I was thinking during the break that in terms of connections, one of the really interesting connections that I don't think I had ever really realized was the fact that Roger Stone, Paul Manafort, <laughs> and Lee Atwater all work on Nixon's 1964 campaign. <laughs> and and they, they become, Lee Atwater becomes the guy who writes the Willie Horton ads, right? <laughs> and he dies and later on at his deathbed sort of apologized to everybody for what he's done. But Roger Stone and Paul Manafort are still working to, to overturn the concept of democracy. And I just find that chilling, first of all, the degree to which Manafort went on to work in Ukraine, for example, Mm -hmm. and the ways in which he used different aspects of government to undermine the rise of democracy there. But I find that just sort of fascinating to have spent one's life essentially trying to overthrow the concept of human Mm self-determination. I I just find that, I mean, like, like, at the end of the day, what do you get out of it? I mean, ostrich boots, right? Like, is 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 your soul worth ostrich boots? And, you know, from a recent uh, New York Times poll, um, some of these tactics are continue to work. Um, you know, a presumptive Republican nominee Donald Trump um, in a recent poll was ahead of Biden in basically every single key swing state um, aside from Wisconsin. What do you make of that, um, g- given all that has happened you know, from 2015 to now? Uh, well, there are a lot of things you can make from that. But the first one, I think, to make from it is not to take polls seriously a year out. You know, again, if we had if you had talked if we had talked in January of 2022, would either one of us have said what's going to change the, the entire globe going forward is mm. Russia invading Ukraine mm. and Volodymyr Zelensky saying, I don't need ride. I need uh, I need more ammunition. I mean, uh, a one sentence line that basically changed world history. And we could not have seen that coming. And we're a year out. So mm-hmm. we, we shouldn't pay attention to it. But more than that, um, we are in a period which, again, s- Uh, Roger Stone and Paul Manafort's fingers are all over, especially Paul Manafort. We're in a period in which one of the ways that people are operating in warfare, especially political warfare, is to create fake illusions of what society is all about in order to get people to vote and to act based on those false illusions. And this is actually a political theory. This is a there's a um, there are manuals for how to do this. It's called political technology or virtual politics. And the idea is you get people to vote against their interests by creating a false reality. And you do that in a number of ways. You do it by disinformation, which is different than misinformation. Mm -hmm. Misinformation is when I screw up. Yeah. 
Disinformation is when I deliberately lie to you to make something, make you believe something is not real. You do it by um, by throwing so much crap at people that they stop being able to make good decisions. They say there's too much going on. I just I don't want to have any part of it. You take care of it. You do it by running fake candidates who have the same name as one of your opponents or who are going to switch sides after you after they're elected. Um, there there's uh, some other ways as well. Mm-hmm. But what you are doing is uh, is creating um, a, a false sense of what's out there. And polling right now, I think if you look, for example, at 2022, has been part of that. So um, that's not to say there are no good polls. There, of course there are good polls. And there are some very good people looking at polls and making good decisions about them. But right now, I think anything you look at that predicts how the future is going to play out is part of, at least should be suspected of being part of a disinformation campaign. <laughs> So what, where do we look to try and understand the state of play right now in American politics? History? <laughs> Serving it up. Serving up for you, Heather. <laughs> um, it, it is true. And there's a, there's a battle going on over what constitutes history right now um, in the United States. And I wanted to ask you about... Um, you know, the New York Times created the 1619 Project, which attempted to, quote, reframe the country's history by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the very center of our national narrative. As I understand it, you know, academic historians have different opinions about the the placement of that emphasis. Um, how did you see that project and the responses to it that, that came out? The 1619 Project? Yeah. Okay, so I was being a little bit flippant with just answering history, and we could actually talk more about that. But the 1619 Project is a really important corrective to the understandings, the popular understandings of the roles of minorities in American history. And I don't just mean racial minorities. I mean gender minorities and, and so on. Um, but the it, it, ha- it was a very specific project because the idea of human enslavement, of course, does not begin with the importation of Africans to the American colonies in 1619. It begins, as, as I say, as soon as somebody drops an anchor uh, from Europe off the North American continent, they enslave indigenous Americans. So one of the things about broadening that lens is the recognition that that I would argue that the stresses in at least American society, which is what I study, are based on power relationships that are not limited to race, but they also include gender. They include many other things. And so if you take that broader lens and say what we are really looking at in the United States in this moment is a question of dominance, Mm -hmm. who gets to dominate others. The 1619 Project is part of that, Mm -hmm. but it is not the end. And one of the things that the 1619 Project um, could often bleed into, weirdly, was some of the aspects of the curriculum, for example, we're seeing out of Florida and out of Oklahoma and out of Texas. And that is the erasure of agency. The Mm. idea that ordinary people who are in horrible circumstances have still managed to make their mark on American society. Mm. And that's the reason, speaking not necessarily so much as a historian here, although that's a theory that I think is very important, but as as a person in today's America... 
The idea that we cannot do things, that things are only done to us, is the really, I thought, the centerpiece of the Florida curriculum, for example, that certainly erased indigenous history and to a very large extent black history. But what it really erased was agency. Hmm. And that um, that is one of the things that I want people to recover is the idea that they can, in fact, affect the future. Because if they don't, somebody else is going to determine how we live our lives. Yeah. I, I, in, along these lines, I think a lot about this philosopher, uh, Zygmunt Bauman, who had this line about what he called liquid modernity, where he said, um, you know, in liquid modernity, anything uh, can happen and nothing can be done. And it's like once you get people in that state of mind, not thinking about that agency, then the only one who can do something is, you know, somebody else, some some uh, dictator or, or big, big person. Um, let's... Um, Bring in uh, Mike in San Francisco. Hey, Mike. Welcome. You're on with Heather. Thank you. I, first, I must say that you're one of the most refreshing and competent uh, political and historical writers. And your your syntax is a joy to read, as well as your, uh, your uh, understanding of facts. I've been watching, studying American politics for 60 years. It's hard to predict anything, but do you think, as I do, that America is now in the greatest danger of becoming an autocracy if a Republican gets elected president? Uh, the second question, if you have time, is very difficult to predict because the way U.S. Supreme Court morphs. Is there a chance it would overrule any uh, any legislation or court decision to bar Donald Trump from running mm -hmm. again? Thanks for that, Mike. Thank you, Michael. Um, first of all, yes, I think that we are in grave danger of an autocracy, uh, which is why I'm writing books like Democracy Awakening and, and leaving my lovely wood stove to cross the country <laughs> and talk to places um, that I don't normally go. And that is, uh, in part, like I say, an attempt to make people regain their agency, reclaim their agency. I do worry terribly about the degree to which our what I would call nodes of democracy have been taken over by right-wing activists who are explicitly rejecting democracy. And this is the first time in our history that we have a major party that is that is explicitly rejecting the idea of democracy. And so we're in a whole new era. That being said, I do believe quite firmly that in a free and fair election, Americans would reject this. And I could we could go on at huge length about where that belief comes from. But that's sort of what keeps me up at night. So the, the Supreme Court, I am a historian of the past. I'm a prophet of the past, not of the future. So I will not say what the, the Supreme Court might do in the future. But I will say this. The Supreme Court is in a period, as it has been once before, by the way, uh, in which it is its its prestige and its ability to um, to make the kind of calls that it used to consider uh, for granted is really under under real siege. I mean, they're really in trouble, and they I think they recognize that. And in the two periods when this has happened before, once more severely than the other, that would be in the period of the turn of the last century, when people in the streets, um, and I don't necessarily mean literally in the streets, but certainly in the public forum, push back against them. They have tended to moderate. 
And that is, I think you can see happening, at least to some degree, with the idea that Clarence Thomas just recused himself from working on a January 6th case, which you know he would not have done had there not been such pushback against his own Mm -hmm. ethics issues. Um, But that being said, the Supreme Court itself is in, I think, a crisis. It is not clear how that crisis is going to play out. The ethics case, the ethics issues with Thomas and to some degree with Alito are such that um, that I would not be surprised um, how to say this. I would not be surprised if there were retirements um, sooner rather than later simply um, because of that. And that, of course, would change everything. So that's the best I can do on the future. Um, one other uh, quick SCOTUS question. Uh, Laura in San Francisco, welcome. Oh, good morning. And thank you so much, Professor Richardson. I'm such a huge fan. Um, just one. Sorry, can you hear me? Yeah, we yeah. can. Go ahead. Okay, great. Thank you. I'm uh, just curious what your thoughts are on whether or not uh, the court will be expanded and what it's going to take for that to happen. And I'll take that off the air. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, Laura. Thank you, Laura. Um, So the Supreme Court has not been expanded since 1869 under Ulysses S. Grant. And of course, the country has gotten just a tad larger since then. And the people who watch the Supreme Court closely, and we have very good court watchers out there right now, Dahlia Lithwick, for example, um, Ian Milheiser, um, are making the point that the, um, uh, Zach Beecham, by the way, are making the point that the court is actually not able to handle the number of cases proportionately that it used to when the, when the country was smaller and there were fewer cases coming up. And I think they have argued very persuasively, if we even needed that argument, that the court does need to be expanded. We have 13 districts now instead of the nine we had in 1869. That all being said, and I'm a big believer that the court needs to be expanded. We know it's not, of course, written in the Constitution. It's established by Congress and so on. And the numbers have changed throughout our history until, as I say, 1869. But doing it in this particular moment has political implications that are troubling, especially as uh, Trump and his people have made it clear that they want to weaponize the Department of Justice and the justice system. So that I think the court will be expanded. I think it would be a problem to do it in a time when people who are trying to overturn our democracy can point to it and say, hey, look, you packed the court. Now we're going to pack the court. Uh, I think it's important instead to recognize just how thoroughly that the Republicans under Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader did, in fact, pack the court by getting rid of the filibuster for the Supreme Court uh, nominations and and remembering that the three people who came on the court under Donald Trump did so with a about 51% or 51 votes. I think Gorsuch got a few more than that. But they were essentially jammed onto the court. And that's something we just don't talk about nearly as much as as much as we need to when we consider how vitally important those three new voices on the court were. Yeah. We're talking with historian Heather Cox Richardson about her new book, Democracy Awakening. Of course, she's a professor of history at Boston College and writes the newsletter Letters from an American, which has two million subscribers. We want to hear from you. What are your questions for Heather Cox Richardson? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. I wanted to ask you about um, history and the Supreme Court now. Um, there is an enormous amount of 
history tidbits in recent Supreme <laughs> Court cases. Do you see that as a, I mean, I know the answer to this, but do you see this as a, a, a proper use of history or, or the way to use history for a court? No. No, but but there's a much larger and more interesting question, I think, at stake in the current place where we are with the Supreme Court. And that is the whole turn to what was called originalism. Quote, unquote. Yes. Yes. Well, that comes from a very specific place. That comes from a pushback against the Warren Court and then the the court that came after it in the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, which used the 14th Amendment, the crucially important 14th Amendment, um, to expand civil rights in the states. And that includes everything from Brown versus Board of Education to Roe versus Wade to uh, the rights of LGBTQ plus people. That was all embedded in the, the idea that the 14th Amendment protects the due process of the laws and gives everybody the equal protection of the law. And that That idea that the 14th Amendment should be used that way, which, by the way, I would argue was exactly the way that people who wrote the 14th Amendment intended it to be used, um, which would be a really interesting discussion. Uh, People who didn't like those things, especially who didn't like civil rights in the states, imposed in the civil states, civil rights imposed in the states that preferred to discriminate, uh, began to argue that this was judicial activism. That is that people in the states voted for something else, but then these judges who were not elected were imposing something else on them. So they began to argue for something called originalism. The idea being that they wanted to go back to the original Constitution, but that was always incredibly murky. There's actually a wonderful scholar here in California named Jonathan Gnapp who has looked very deeply into how the different ways people had used originalism and the different phases it went through. Because originally, when people like Anton and Scalia talked about originalism, they said they wanted to go back to the actual history. But then very quickly, they began cherry-picking their history and and discovering that history did not, in fact, say what they wanted it to say. So then they came up with all sorts of textual ideas that you would look at the text rather than look at the actual history. And there's all these different phases of that. But embedded in that is a really important question about where democracy lies. That is, if you say that democracy lies in the states, as originalists did, you are also saying that because the states get to decide who votes, as they do, and as they have done in places like North Carolina and in the places where people are losing their vote, you're saying that essentially in the states you can develop a system that is run by a very few people. And historically, those are rich white guys. You know, it just is. It's exactly the, the way that people used to focus on the states because they figured you could buy a state legislature much faster than you could buy national government. And by that, I don't necessarily mean passing bills to them. I mean, you, you get them yeah. elected, right? So within that idea, the idea of going back to originalism, there is embedded, I think, the idea that you're going to turn the government over to a very few people. Hmm. So, so of course, now, you're, in answer to your question, in order to justify some of the decisions that the current Supreme Court has made regarding abortion, for example, and regarding the use of firearms, they claim to have gone back to using history. Hmm. And the reality is any historian will tell you that their history is completely made up. We had abortion in the early days, and we did not have this idea of guns everywhere. We'll be back with historian Heather Cox Richardson right after this break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're joined this morning in the studio by Heather Cox Richardson talking about her new book, Democracy Awakening. She's a professor of history at Boston College, author of seven books, including an award-winning book called How the South Won the Civil War. Uh, You might know her from her newsletter, Letters from an American, which synthesizes history and modern political issues. We'll want to hear from you. We've been taking some of your questions for Heather Cox Richardson. The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, threads, Discord. We're KQED Forum and all those places. You know, we know that there are always continuities in history, especially intellectual history. But we're also living in this moment of climate change when, you know, weather patterns of the past don't really necessarily have a, a, a bearing on weather of the future. The speed of discourse is much faster. You know, a political party has turned against majority rule. We might look to the past, but can we still draw the same types of insights that we've been able to previously? That's actually a really wonderful question. I would say yes, because people are people and people got a people, right? <laughs> um, so our while speed is faster, I would say that in the United States, which is all I will talk about, we have throughout our history faced problems that at the time were thought of as being insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Um, westward expansion in the 1850s, for example, changed everything. What does, what does democracy look like when all of a sudden you're moving into a territory where other people live and you know, you've know you got to decide how people get incorporated and all those things? It was huge. Uh, changed demographics all over the country. You know, there's This is where we get the idea of spinsters as being women who are unwanted women because spinsters were people who had made thread in the past and were part of the household economy. Now they're unmarried because the men are moving out to the West and moving to the city. Mm-hmm. So all the, you know, we get all these major changes then. Late 19th century, we get industrialization. What does democracy look like during industrialization when you have somebody like Andrew Carnegie owning city blocks and then their workers are living in hovels? You know, right. Are they still equal? 20th century, we have the introduction of the United States on a global forum. What does that look like? What does it look like when all of a sudden people are not simply living in a world in which might makes right, but they're trying actually to come up with the idea of the rule of law or the international-based rule of law in order to have international uh, international relations. Late 20th century, we get nuclear weapons. And all of these things change the ideas of what it means mm-hmm. to, be, to live in a democracy. So now we have the issue of much faster communications and the idea of climate change, which is making our decision-making incredibly important in this moment. Are we going to manage it? Possibly not, right? Mm -hmm. We're on a knife edge. We maybe couldn't do it. But at the end of the day, what's the old saying? Americans tend to do the right thing after they've tried everything else. Right, right. 
know, I mean, I guess one way that I have been thinking about this is we we do want to think we're going to like win over climate change. But there's many interesting times in your book where, in fact, things are going the wrong direction. You know, we have what happens uh, in the South during the Jim Crow era, for example. And yet there are still people who are sort of churning to to find the new next best um, democratic movement. Um, Where do you see that happening now, even if we see so many things going in the wrong direction? That's a, I love that because one of the things that jumps out in Democracy Awakening and ended up being central to a major rewrite I did before the, the book mm-hmm. came out, about 80% rewrite, wow. was the NAACP. Because the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, forms in 1909, right at the height of lynching in the American South, the height of the Jim Crow laws, you know, the and the Juan Crow laws. And, and yet they articulate a vision of the United States based in Lincoln's work, they form on his birthday. Birthday and in the Declaration of Independence. And they publicize that. W.B. Du Bois begins to work to say, listen, the, this America that we envisioned is not the America in which we're living. And the NAACP goes on to be crucial in the civil rights movement, publicizing things like Emmett Till's murder. So what I have what I look for around me is those sorts of language changes and people coming together around them. Mm-hmm. And I, so an example of that, Jeff, from just this week is the number of people in just this last week who began to talk about the idea of income inequality being a real issue in the United States. There was a major article in the New York Times. There was a major article in Politico. I wrote about it. You know, that's the sort of thing you wouldn't have seen 10 years ago in mainstream media. But where I'm really looking in this moment is that all the movements that are organizing that that again, the legacy media or the mainstream media is not paying attention to. And these tend to be people who are previously not involved in American politics. Uh, suburban women, for example, there's a very large organization of suburban women around this country who are politically active. The people who read me, you know, who, who number in the millions of people who are concerned about democracy and who are stepping up, not to agree on everything, that's not the point of democracy, but to show up to vote in every election from you know the dog catcher and school board and town hall up through state legislators and finally at the upper levels of the government, which is in fact how you create a movement. That I think is all around us. Mm. And I, you know, I think if you look at the fact that in all of the special elections since the Dobbs decision and Jackson Women's Health that overturned Roe versus Wade, Democrats have overperformed by eight points. I mean, eight points is a landslide in American politics. It says to me that there is something happening out there that looks very much like the other moments in American history where quiet movements took back democracy. Let's bring in Brad in uh, Foster City. Welcome, Brad. Hi, you guys. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, I really appreciate having such an intellectual, like uh, more historians on uh, <laughs> uh, forum and capability. Thank you, uh, Dr. Richardson. I'd like to ask, like you, you pick which solution here you think would be have a greater impact. I personally have made the case with people that I think women there should be need more women in places of leadership and power. Uh, if you look at the census, if women are about 51 percent, I see no why, no reason why Congress is nearly 80 percent plus male. And uh, if you, and just real briefly, 
women by the actuarial tables outlive men. They go through this amazing process of creating and growing inside of them all, pro- all, all, our, all our future uh, people. And uh, just, just, you know, that alone gives them, I think, an intuitive uh, tie-in and appreciation for life and, and family that men are ignorant of. So I think, and if you look at how many men are just starting wars like Putin, yeah. ex- just to expand his country a little bit. So anyway, idea of men, more women in power, or I also think I wanted to ask originally, uh, I told your screener about the rise of lobbyists. I think one of the other biggest problems is the check on lobbyists. If I remember... Yeah. In 1980, yeah. as a little kid, Schoolhouse Rock, you'd write a bill. So what do you think about the rise, basically rich people being able to buy a bribery broker and have the will their way uh, imposed and influenced Thanks, on Brad. policymakers? Yeah. Uh, Okay, so I love this because, yes, more women in politics, more people of color in politics, the ideas of having our representative government actually represent us, that would require actually conversations, real conversations about about our, our legislation, which are not happening right now in uh, around the world, but also, I mean, around the country, but also in Congress to the degree that I would like. But that latter question about... um, about lobbying is a larger question, I think, about money in politics and the degree to which we have extraordinary amounts of money in politics. And one of the things, of course, that many of us would like to see happen is the overturning of Citizens United, which allowed the pouring into our political system of tons of, of, of dark money. Uh, but, but I would go a bit further. You know, somebody said to me once, if you could do one thing, anything to change American society, what would it be? And I'm such an incredible nerd um, (laughs) that my answer is I would revisit our tax policies, which since (laughs) 1981, the tax cuts under Reagan in 1981 and 1986 began the process of concentrating extraordinary amounts of wealth at the top of the scale. And anybody who looks at any of the statistics will tell you that the reason we have a budget deficit right now is not because we're spending more discretionary income on social programs. In fact, those have held virtually steady since the 1950s, with the exception of a spike during COVID. Similarly, our percentage of GDP that we spend on the military, crazily enough, has actually gone slightly down since the Cold War, which always shocks me. But what has happened is the reason we have the budget so deeply in the red is because of the George W. Bush tax cuts and the Donald Trump tax cuts, the ones that the current Republican House is trying so desperately to protect. At the same time, they're insisting that we have to cut Social Security and Medicare in order to make up for that difference. So if I could do anything to address Mm. the second issue you talk about, I would roll back at least the George W. Bush and the Trump tax cuts. But I would revisit our tax policies because I think before you even worry about Citizens United, you have to worry about the fact that we have put put to the top of the scale literally trillions trillions of dollars since the 1980s. And those trillions of dollars are buying our politics. Right. Redistribution upwards. And also um, a point that you make in the book, which is really important, too, is just that the corporate tax rate also got cut during this time from uh, a lot. Um, Let's bring in uh, Bruce in Piedmont. Welcome, Bruce. Hi. Good morning. Um, Yeah, I want to just go back to that question about people thinking that the government is or the country is going the wrong way. A recent NPR poll said 75% of the people think that the government and the nation is going the wrong way. Well, that includes a lot of Republicans, probably more Republicans than Democrats. But, you know, they have 
very opposite points of view. And I'd like to get your take, uh, Dr. Richardson, on, on, you know, what this means and where we're going um, from here. Yeah, why, why it seems like the one thing people agree on is that things are going poorly. <laughs> well, I haven't seen that particular poll, but I think you're probably correct that the people who are concerned, uh, that, that there are two very different ways to approach that. There's the one that says the country is going the wrong direction because we're giving too much of a voice to marginalized Americans and we're spending way too much money on social welfare programs and so on, which has been the the rhetoric of the people on the right. And then there's people who disavow that that rhetoric and say, we're going in the wrong direction because we're headed for autocracy. So, you know, I'm one of those people who might be included in that poll. And I would not be saying we're headed in the wrong direction because we have people of color in Congress, right? <laughs> so so I, I wouldn't want to see the crosstabs on that poll. But that being said, there is, I think, a real problem in what I would call, I guess, the W.B. Du Bois problem. That is that given the opportunity to do anything he wanted for the NAACP, W.B. Du Bois, who was obviously a genius, a sociologist, but also just an unbelievable writer, chose to, to direct their magazine, The Crisis, because he recognized that the way you change society is to change the way people think about it. And one of the things that I try and do is to articulate a vision for a country that is able to expand its democracy and to address the very real problems in which we are living um, by actually addressing them and, and reinforcing democracy. And Sometimes it feels a little bit lonely out here. Um, and I'm not saying anything that's incredibly radical. I literally often go back to Abraham Lincoln's writings and try and channel what he said for the modern day, sort of saying, listen, we can disagree about immigration. We can disagree about finances. We can disagree about taxes. We can disagree about the foreign affairs. But we do agree on the concept of democracy. And one of the things that I really hope people do in the year going forward is to reinforce that it's okay to disagree about the the specifics of our democracy. But we are not really Republicans versus Democrats at this point. We are people who believe in democracy versus people who believe in autocracy. And I really think the vast majority of us are on that democracy side, but we need to recognize that we're a majority and take back that government from those who would destroy it. You know, you mentioned W.B. Du Bois working on the magazine, which had a you know incredible context to that kind of information, right? I mean, a magazine is the ultimate kind of contextual media form. Now people are encountering media and media objects in this radically decontextualized format, um, whether it's, you know, in, in TikToks, it's on their Facebook page, it's on, the, on all these different places. How can people reassemble the kind of context that seems necessary to have a vision of the country like you're describing? Well, the I mean, we will see you're talking about the future. But my approach to that has been much like weirdly, much like the populists used in the late 19th century, in that when people think about the populist movement, as I know, everybody does every day, <laughs> right? Um, they forget that that really came from a position that looked very much like America does today. That is, the parties were radically opposed to what they believed should the, how the country should move forward. And the workers and the farmers were really in huge trouble. For, in the, the economy was destroying them. 
And a lot of rich people like Andrew Carnegie were taking everything. And what the populists did actually led, as as I think it was Brad, the caller, was talking about, led by people like uh, Mary Elizabeth Lease, um, a woman, did, was they said to people, listen, we're just going to explain to you how things are how things work. You know, this is how the tariff works. This is how the railroads work. This is why your seeds are so expensive. And when they did that, they crossed like wildfire across the plains. And people stepped up to say, again, we disagree about many things. And in fact, one of the things about the populace that people tend to forget is they were unbelievably anti-Semitic. But we do believe in a democracy that responds to the people. And when they started to do that, they started in the summer of 1890. And in the election of 1890 that year, they took over control of the House of Representatives. They essentially took over control of the Senate. And they so dramatically um, changed the calculations in Washington that the president at the time, Benjamin Harrison, this is a wonderful letter. This woman goes to visit him and he, he, she says he just wandered around the garden and he kept saying, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. <laughs> All I know is it wasn't my fault. <laughs> so I think that um, that the the creating of a national story that is based in, as I say, these very basic concepts, the idea that we should have be treated equally before the law and we should have a right to a say in our government, that's a national story that we can all get behind, even if we don't agree on many other things. And that's sort of the, the I think, the narrative we need to have going into 2024. Um, you know, Beth writes in to say, you know, there are so many books with different political viewpoints with democracy in the title that I realized the term democracy seems to mean something different to many people. I feel like you provided us with kind of like the de minimis description there, right, for democracy? De minimis is the, is the, the yeah. crucial word there, because, of course, there are plenty of ways you could argue that. And other people do, including many of my colleagues, that in order to maintain democracy, you have to you have to include economic um justice, for example, and racial justice and any number of different things. What I would have tried to do is strip that down to something extraordinarily basic. And that's the extraordinarily basic point from which women's rights activists began, from which black rights activists began and so on, saying equal before the laws, right to a say in our government, and we can take it from there. And that, again, you know, I am perfectly happy to hand this project off as soon as those two things are safe. But that seems to me to be something that we can all get behind, regardless of how we might feel about economic justice or racial justice or any number of other things. Mm-hmm. You know, Mary writes in to say, so great to have this wonderful voice of history and sanity on forum. Democracy Awakening is a great book. More history and fewer uh, alternative facts. Thanks, Mary. <laughs> <laughs> We have been talking with historian Heather Cox Richardson about her new book, Democracy Awakening. Heather Cox Richardson, of course, is a professor of history at Boston College, the author of seven books. Her widely read newsletter, Letters from an American, is on Substack, synthesizes history and modern political issues. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Heather Cox Richardson. It's been a real pleasure. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for the next Hour Forum with Mina Kim.
funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.